This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. Today we revisit a, an old friend of this channel, <laughs> Blessed Fulton Sheen. I have for you today his take on the conflict inside the soul of modern man. And that conflict is essentially what happens when we turn our backs on God individually and socially. What happens when we push God from the public square, which inevitably leads to pushing God from the hearts and minds of men. That turns into social and political turmoil. It leads to chaos. It leads to the disillusion of tradition. The focusing of man on man. On materialism ultimately leading to self-destruction. It's the opening chapter of a long-forgotten book of his, and I have a copy published sometime in like the 1930s or something, so we're going to go over that here for the next several months on this channel. Let me know if you like this plan, and once you hear this, what he has to say here. He delves into psychology a little bit, but his point becomes pretty clear. We've replaced religion with psychology and with politics, and all that road leads us to nothing but perdition. Frustration and man's loss of a sense of wonder in the created world by Fulton Sheen. Unless souls are saved, nothing is saved. There can be no world peace unless there is soul peace. Major conflicts are only projections of the conflicts waged inside the souls of modern men, for nothing happens in the external world that has not first happened within a soul. During World War II, Pius XII said that post-war man would be more changed than the map of post-war Europe. It is this post-war frustrated man, or the modern soul, which interests us in this volume. He is, as the Holy Father predicted, unlike the men of earlier periods. For one thing, the modern soul no longer looks to find God in nature. In other generations, men, staring out on the vastness of creation, the beauty of the skies, and the order of the planets, deduce the power, the beauty, and the wisdom of the God who created and sustained that world. But the modern man, unfortunately, is cut off from that approach by several obstacles. He is impressed less with the order of nature than he is with the disorder of his own mind, which has become his main preoccupation. Oppenheimer's device has destroyed his awe of a nature which man can now manipulate so as to destroy other men or even use for our own self-destruction. And finally, the science of nature is too impersonal for this self-centered age. The old approach not only makes man a mere spectator of reality, instead of its creator, but also demands that the personality of the seeker after truth shall not intrude itself in investigation. But it is the human personality, not nature, which really interests and troubles men today. This change in our times does not mean that the modern soul has given up the search for God, but only that it has abandoned the more rational and even more normal way of finding him. Not the order in the cosmos, but the disorder in himself. Not the visible things of the world, but the invisible frustrations, complexes, and anxieties of his own personality. These are the modern man's starting point when he turns questioningly towards religion. In happier days, philosophers discussed the problem of man. Now they discuss man as a problem. Quoting a philosopher, 
Through his skepticism, the modern man is thrown back upon himself. His energies flow towards their source and wash to the surface those psychic contents which are at all times there, but lie hidden in the silt as long as the stream flows smoothly in its course. How totally different did the world appear to medieval man. For him the earth was eternally fixed and at rest in the center of the universe, encircled by the course of a sun that solicitously bestowed its warmth. Men were all children of God under the loving care of the Most High, who prepared them for eternal blessedness, and all knew exactly what they should do and how they should conduct themselves in order to rise from a corruptible world to an incorruptible and joyous existence. Such a life no longer seems real to us, even in our dreams. Natural science has long ago torn this lovely veil to shreds. That age lies as far behind as childhood, when one's own father was unquestionably the handsomest and strongest man on earth. End quote. Formerly, man lived in a three-dimensional universe, where from an earth he inhabited with his neighbors. He looked forth to heaven above and to hell below. Forgetting God, man's vision has lately been reduced to a single dimension. He now thinks of his activity as limited to the surface of the earth, a plane whereon he moves not up to God or down to Satan, but only to the right or to the left. The old theological division of those who are in the state of grace and those who are not has given way to the political separation of rightists and leftists. The modern soul has definitely limited its horizons, having negated the eternal destinies, and has even lost its trust in nature, for nature without God is traitorous. Where can the soul go, now that a roadblock has been thrown up against every external outlet? Like a city which has had all its outer ramparts seized, man must retreat inside himself, as a body of water that is blocked turns back upon itself, collecting scum, refuse, and silt, so the modern soul, which has none of the goals or channels of the Christian, backs upon itself and in that choked condition collects all the subrational, instinctive, dark, unconscious sediment which would never have accumulated had there been the normal exits of normal times. Man now finds that he is locked up within himself, his own prisoner, jailed by self, he now attempts to compensate for the loss of the three-dimensional universe of faith by finding three new dimensions within his own mind. Above his ego, his conscience level, he discovers, in place of heaven, an inexorable tyrant whom he calls the superego. Below his consciousness, in place of hell, he substitutes a hidden world of instinct and urges, primitive longings and biological needs, which he calls the id. This conception of the human person as consisting of three layers or regions has been emphasized by Sigmund Freud. It forms an essential element in the psychoanalytical doctrine of human nature. The most important feature of this doctrine is the belief that man's conscience mental life, his experiences, and his conduct are determined, not by what he knows, feels, or intends, but by forces largely hidden from his consciousness. His ego or consciousness is only the battlefield where an incessant war is fought between his biological primitive urges and the powers embodied in the superego. These powers take the place of conscience. They originate not in the awareness of a natural law and of man's obligation in the face of divine law, but from social pressure, environmental influences brought to bear on the plastic mind of the small child. Because the fulfillment of the primitive urges is placed under control by society, as in the training of toilet habits, these urges become frustrated. Their original aims cannot persist in our consciousness because of their intolerable conflict with environmental standards, whereby they become repressed. The child thus takes over all the laws, 
viewpoints and values of the adult world when he accepts these standards as his own. He does this by identifying himself with a person whom he would view as an antagonist in a primitive society. Thus, the superego arises and acquires its contents, the rules, taboos, and ideals that happen to be those of the child's surrounding world. According to such a modern conception of the subjective life, man appears as a captive within his own mind and as a victim of forces which he cannot recognize. To free himself, if that be possible, he must know more about his prison. This is one reason for the great popularity psychiatry enjoys today. This science promises to explain man to himself, to enable him to cope better with his tragic situation. A certain type of psychiatry tries to explain man by a theory that the conscience is devoid of value, that only through the unconscious may modern man hope to discover a way out of his unhappiness. The conscience in this belief is both forced from below by the id and put under pressure from above by the superego. Conscience man is helpless between them. Psychiatry then becomes a sort of iron file whereby man hopes to escape out of this mental prison where he has locked himself, acting as his own turnkey. The psychoanalytical theory sees the clue to all human behavior as buried within the minds of individual men, but the parallel between modern theories of the inner and the outer world is striking. Both systems of thought emphasize tension and the possibility of an upheaval. The prophet of the one is Marx, whose philosophy centers in social conflict. The prophet of the other is Freud, whose main concern is with individual conflicts. In both conceptions, the chaotic and unhappy state of man's affairs is said to spring from the tension between the surface appearance, on the one hand, and on the other from the hidden, dark, irrational forces, which, though unknown, are the true determinants of all that happens. As in Marxism, the manifest social, political, cultural status is but a superstructure erected upon the underlying economic forces. So in Freud's system, conscious conduct is only a product of forces located in the unconscious. In both, human situations are seen in terms of conflicting interests. Freud's psychology analyzed neuroses as issuing out of dialectical clash between desire and law. While Freud deals with contradictions within the psychic processes, his method for explaining these contradictions follows a materialistic strategy. When the conflict between the unconscious forces and the conscious ego reaches a certain intensity, according to Freud, the effect is of upheaval, with a disruption of life and conduct. For Marx, in an analogous fashion, social peace is disrupted when the proletariat arises, and that will occur when economic forces from below are strong enough to overthrow the existing social and economic order. Freud and Marx agree, too, that all events, social and personal, are strictly determined. Spiritual freedom is denied by both. The Marxist holds that history is determined by economic forces. The Freudian, that man's personal fate, depends on instinctual forces. Both envision the abolition of inhibitions as the way toward a better state of affairs. The very existence of this parallel in thinking indicates how modern man understands or misunderstands himself within the general cultural, intellectual, and philosophical temperature of these times. Historical materialism, the philosophy of Marx, and psychological materialism, the philosophy of Freud, are children of the same age and express the same attitudes. The complexes, anxieties, and fears of the modern soul did not exist to such an extent in previous generations because they were shaken off and integrated in the great social-spiritual organism of Christian civilization. They are, however, so much a part of modern man that one would think that they were tattooed on him. Whatever his condition, the modern man must be brought back to God and happiness. But how?
Should the Christian with his eternal verities insist that modern man must go back to the traditional approach, which started its argument with nature, that he must approach God through the five arguments of St. Thomas? It would be a saner wor world if he could. But it is the point of this book that we must make a start with the modern man as he is, not as we should like to find him, because our apologetic literature has missed this point. It is about 50 years behind the times. It leaves the modern soul cold, not because its arguments are unconvincing, but because the modern soul is too confused to grasp them. But we who are heirs of 20 centuries of sound thinking must not deal with the supernatural as a dog with a bone. If the modern soul wants to begin its quest for peace with its psychology instead of with our own metaphysics, we will begin with psychology. God's truth would have few facets if it could not start with human nature in any degree of perfection, or even of degradation. The modern man wants to go to God from the devil. Why, then, we will even have to start with the devil. That is where the divine Lord began with Magdalene, and he told his followers that, with prayer and fasting, they too could start their evangelical work there. The psychological approach offers us no difficulty, for Christian theology is, in a certain sense, a psychology, since its primary interest is the soul, the most precious of things. Our Lord balanced a universe against a soul and found the soul worth more than gaining the world. To study souls is nothing new. In the whole gamut of modern psychology, there is nothing written on frustration, fears, and anxieties which can even faintly compare in depth or breadth with St. Thomas's treatise on the passions, St. Augustine's confessions, or Bousseau's treatise on concupiscence. But it may be asked, is not the modern soul so different from that of a previous age that the older writers lacked experience of such a phenomenon, so that not even the gospel can offer a cure? No, there is nothing really new in the world. There are only the old problems happening to new people. There is no difference except that of terminology between the frustrated soul of today and the frustrated souls found in the gospel. The modern man is characterized by three alienations. He is divided from himself, from his fellow man, and from his God. These are the same three characteristics of the frustrated youth in the land of the Gerasenes. Self-estrangement the modern man is no longer a unity, but a confused bundle of complexes and nerves. He is so disassociated, so alienated from himself, that he sees himself less as a personality than as a battlefield where domestic conflict rages between a thousand and one conflicting loyalties. There is no single overall purpose in his life. His soul is comparable to a menagerie in which a number of beasts, each seeking its own prey, turn one upon the other. Or he may be likened to a radio that is tuned into several stations. Instead of getting anyone clearly, it receives only an annoying static. If the frustrated soul is educated, it has a smattering of uncorrelated bits of information with no unifying philosophy. Then the frustrated soul may say to itself, I sometimes think there are two of me, a living soul and a PhD. Such a man projects his own mental confusion to the outside world and concludes that, since he knows no truth, nobody can know it. His own skepticism, which he universalizes into a philosophy of life, throws him back more and more upon those powers lurking in the dark, dank caverns of his unconsciousness. He changes his philosophy as he changes his clothes. On Monday, he lays down the tracks of materialism. On Tuesday, he reads a bestseller, pulls up the old tracks, and lays the new tracks of an idealist. On Wednesday, his new road is communistic. On Thursday, the new rails of liberalism are laid. On Friday, he hears a broadcast and decides to travel on Freudian tracks. On Saturday, he takes a long drink to forget his railroading, and on Sunday, ponders why people are so foolish as to go to church. 
Each day he has a new idol, each week a new mood. His authority is public opinion. When that shifts, his frustrated soul shifts with it. There is no fixed ideal, no great passion, but only a cold indifference to the rest of the world. Living in a continual state of self-reference, his conversational eyes come closer and closer, as he finds all neighbors increasingly boring if they insist on talking about themselves instead of about him. Isolation from Fellow Men This characteristic is revealed not only by the two world wars in 21 years and a constant threat of a third, not only by the growth of class conflict and selfishness wherein each man seeks his own, but also by man's break with tradition and the accumulated heritage of the centuries. The revolt of the modern child against his parents is a miniature of the revolt of the modern world against the memory of 1900 years of Christian culture and the great Hebrew, Grecian, and Roman cultures which preceded them. Any respect for that tradition is called reactionary, with the result that the modern soul has developed a commentator mentality which judges yesterday by today and today by tomorrow. Nothing is more tragic in an individual who once was wise than to lose his memory, and nothing is more tragic to a civilization than the loss of its tradition. The modern soul which cannot live with itself cannot live with its fellow men. A man who is not at peace with himself will not be at peace with his brother. World wars are nothing but microcosmic signs of the psychic wars waging inside microcosmic muddled souls. If there had not already been battles in millions of hearts, there would be none on the battlefields of the world. Given a soul alienated from self, lawlessness follows. A soul with a fight inside itself will soon have a fight outside itself with others. Once a man ceases to be of service to his neighbor, he begins to be a burden to him. It is only a step from refusing to live with others to refusing to live for others. When Adam sinned, he accused Eve, and when, Ca when Cain ended Abel, he asked the antisocial question, Am I my brother's keeper? When Peter sinned, he went out alone and wept bitterly. Babel's sin of pride ended in a confusion of tongues, which made it impossible to maintain fellowship. Our personal self-hatred always becomes hatred of neighbor. Perhaps this is one of the reasons for the basic appeal of communism, with its philosophy of class struggle. Communism has a special affinity for souls that already have a struggle going on inside of themselves. Associated with this inner conflict is a tendency to become hypercritical. Unhappy souls almost always blame everyone but themselves for their miseries. Shut up within themselves, they are necessarily shut off from all others except to criticize them. Since the essence of sin is opposition to God's will, it follows that the sin of one individual is bound to oppose any other individual whose will is in harmony with God's will. This resulting estrangement from one's fellow man is intensified when one begins to live solely for this world. Then the possessions of the neighbor are regarded as something unjustly taken from oneself. Once the material becomes the goal of life, a society of, con a society of conflict is born. As Shelley said, the accumulation of the materials of eternal life exceed the quantity of power of assimilating them to the eternal laws of our nature. Matter divides as spirit unites. Divide an apple into four parts, and it is always possible to quarrel as to who has the biggest part. But if four men learn a prayer, no man, one man deprives the other of possessing it. The prayer becomes the basis of their unity. When the goal of civilization consists, not in union with the Heavenly Father, but in the acquisition of material things, there is an increase in the potentialities of envy, greed, and war. Divided men then seek a dictator to bring them together, not in the unity of love, but in the false unity of the three Ps, power, police, and politics. Estrangement from God 
Alienation from self and from one's fellow men has its root in separation from God. Once the hub of the wheel, which is God, is lost, the spokes which are men fall apart. God seems very far away from the modern man. This is due to a great extent to his own godless behavior. Goodness always appears as a reproach to those who are not living right, and this reproach on the part of the sinner expresses itself in hatred and persecution. There is rarely a disrupted, frustrated soul, critical and envious of his neighbor who is not at the same time an anti-religious man. The organized atheism of the present hour is thus a projection of self-hatred. No man hates God without first hating himself. Persecution of religion is a sign of the indefensibility of the anti-religious or atheistic attitude, for by the violence of hate it hopes to escape the irrationality of godlessness. The final form of this hatred of religion is a wish to defy God and to maintain one's own evil in the face of his goodness and power. Revolting against the whole of existence, such a soul thinks that it has disproved it. It begins to admire its own torment as a protest against life. Such a soul will not hear about religion, lest the comfort become a comfort become a condemnation of its own arrogance. It defies it instead. Never able to make sense of its own life, it universalizes its own inner discord and sees the world as a kind of chaos in the face of which it develops the philosophy of living dangerously. He functions as a distracted atom in growing chaos made poor by his wealth, made empty by his fullness, reduced to monotony by his very opportunities for variety, says a philosopher. Does such a confused soul exist in the gospel? Is modern psychology studying a different type of man from the one our divine Lord came to redeem? If we turn to St. Mark, we find that a young man in the land of Gerasene is described as having exactly the same three frustrations as the modern soul. He was self-estranged, for when our Lord asked, What is thy name? The young man answered, My name is Legion, for we are many. Notice the personality conflict and the confusion between my and we are many. It is obvious that he is a problem to himself, a bewildered backlash of a thousand and one conflicting anxieties. For that reason, he called himself Legion. No divided personality is happy. The gospel describes this unhappiness by saying that the young man was crying and, and harming inflicting harm with stones. The confused man has always said he is his own worst enemy as he as he twists the purpose of nature for his own destruction. The young man was also separated from his fellow men, for the gospel describes him thus, and he was always day and night in the monuments and in the mountains. He was a menace to other men. For having been often bound with fetters and chains, he had burst the chains, broken the fetters in pieces, and no one could tame him. Isolation is a peculiar quality of godlessness, whose natural habitat is away from fellow men, among the tombs in the, in the region of death. There is no cement in sin, its nature is centrifugal, divisive, and disruptive. He was separated from God, for when he saw the divine Savior, he shouted, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. That is to say, what have we in common? Your presence is my destruction. It is an interesting psychological fact that the frustrated soul hates goodness and wants to be separated from it. Every sinner hides from God. The very first ender of life said, I shall be hidden from, my, from thy face, and I shall be a vagabond and a fugitive on the earth. It appears that the modern soul is not so modern after all. Like the Gerasene youth, he is estranged from himself, his fellow man, and his God. But there is a difference nonetheless, and it is this. The Gerasene youth was pre-Christian, the modern soul post-Christian. Fundamental as the distinction is, it still leaves the problem. How deal with the man of today? 
One thing is certain, the modern soul is not going to find peace so long as he is locked up inside himself, mulling around in the scum and sediment of his unconscious mind, a prey of those unconscious forces whose nature and existence he glorifies. It is interesting that Freud, who thought such a self-centered solution, the right one, took as the motto for one of his earlier works, If I cannot bend the gods on high, I will set all hell in an uproar. His is not the answer. In dethroning the conscious values of the world, one does indeed set hell in an uproar, and ended neuroses worse than confounded. The true answer is that man must be released from his inner prison. He will go mad if he must be content to chase the tail of his own mind, being both seeker and soul, rabbit and hound. Peace of soul cannot come from himself any more than he can lift himself by his own ears. Help must come from without, and it must be not merely human help, but divine. Nothing short of a divine invasion which restores man to ethical reality can make man happy when he is alone and in the dark. The frustrated youth of the Gerasenes was cured only when our Lord restored him to himself, his fellow men, and God. He then recovered the purpose of life. No longer calling himself Legion, the Gospel describes him as sitting clothed and well in his wits. In our language, he was feeling like his own self. Instead of being isolated from community life, we find him restored to fellowship by our Lord, who told him, Go into thy house to thy friends. Finally, instead of hating God, we find that he begins to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men wondered. It is similar with man today. If the modern soul is too harassed with fears and anxieties to come to God through the loveliness of a star, then it can come to him through the loneliness of a heart saying with the psalmist, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. It is If it cannot find God through the argument of motion, it can reach him by way of its own disgusts, aye, even though through the handle of its sins. The important question is not, what will become of us, but what will we be? Oppenheimer's device has taken our minds off existence and purpose, yet it is still true to today that how one gets out of time is not so important as how one is in eternity. Oppenheimer's device in the hands of a Francis of Assisi would be less harmful than, than a modern implement in the hand of a criminal. What makes Oppenheimer's device dangerous is not the energy it contains, but the man who uses it. Therefore, it is modern man who has to be remade. Unless he can stop the explosions inside his own mind, he will probably, armed with the device, do harm to the planet itself, as Pius XII has warned. Modern man has locked himself in the prison of his own mind, and only God can let him out, as he let Peter out of his dungeon. All that man himself must do is, is to contribute the desire to get out. God will not fail. It is only our human desire that is weak. There is no reason for discouragement. It was the bleeding lamb in the thickets, more than the flock in the peaceful pastures, which attracted the Savior's heart and helping hand. But the recovery of peace through his grace implies an understanding of anxiety, the grave complement of imprisoned modern man. What did you think of that? Do you agree that the great tragedy for modern man is a loss of tradition? And that it is in tradition that we are rooted to God? That seems to be the point. That it is the godless who push us from tradition, who push us away from God, who are afraid of God. That those who wrap themselves in modern theologies and or philosophies, rather, modern political solutions to theological problems, there's an absence of God there. wonder what the Vatican would think of that these days, given that they're the recent closing of the synod was so focused on man, 
navel-gazing about man, about materialism, and man's social condition. Very little mention of the gospel in that document. Very curious what you have to say about this, so let me know in the comments, please. And hit like and subscribe if you haven't, because it does help. So to sharing this on social media, that helps too. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.